Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer. And I'm Will Oremus. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, January 2nd. On today's show, we'll talk about a key detail of the new tax plan that could have a huge effect on gig workers in the tech sector, and maybe on robots. We'll talk a little bit about Apple's battery gate situation and the company's rare apology. And later, we'll be joined by Future Tense's Tori Bosch to talk about the anthology What Future? The year's best ideas to reclaim, reanimate, and reinvent our future. April, how were your holidays? Um, I moved this holiday, so I was pretty much just, uh, you know, packing and unpacking boxes. But it was nice to have uh, the the moment of respite from work to do that. What about you, Will? How was yours? Ours was a little hectic. We had that trip up to the Bay Area, mm-hmm. but it gave me the chance to record in person with you guys our last couple episodes. I'm back here in Santa Barbara. The holidays were good. I hear the big winner of these holidays were Amazon Alexa devices, which were the top sellers on Amazon.com. I noticed the Alexa app was number one for a time on the iTunes store. What do you make of that, April? I think that they're super easy gifts to get people that you don't know very well. (laughs) Or maybe if you do know them well, they might think it's cool. But I think it's like pretty much a gift that you could get for anybody. So it makes sense to me. Yeah, it makes sense. There's there's actually a great piece that I would recommend listeners check out if they have a chance, which is our colleague Heather Schwedell wrote a piece in Slate about people who have gotten Alexa devices as gifts and the uh, some of the uncomfortable situations that have ensued. But April, uh, you wanted to talk about the tax plan, and specifically there's a provision of the tax plan, I understand, that would affect how the gig economy works. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So we all know that at the end of the year, the Republicans shoved this huge tax plan through Congress. And the centerpiece of that plan was to slash the corporate tax rate from 35 percent to 21 percent, which is huge. Um, But that's just one of the truckloads of changes that will kind of be ushered in with this new tax code. Another that really deserves some scrutiny as well is a benefit, actually, for those who are gig workers or independent contractors. And those are folks who run their own pass-through businesses. And a pass-through business in this case is where the profits are actually passed directly through to the business owner. So folks who fall into that category, my understanding is that they get to reduce their taxable income by 20%. So if you make 50000 you could only be taxed on 40000 And, you know, this could be read as an incentivized – as uh, incentive for some people, rather, to uh, – become gig workers or to 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 stop being traditionally employed and to start kind of running their own LLC. On its face, this actually sounds like maybe a good thing. I mean, we've been worried about these gig workers who are breaking their necks, taking five different freelance jobs to try to get by. Maybe this helps them a bit. 
is there a downside as well for them? Um, it's, you know, it might help them, but what it really does is probably help to push a culture forward that um, promotes this type of employment, right? As opposed to a culture that promotes uh, a type of employment, like a traditional type of employment where uh, employers, you know, provide all kinds of benefits to workers, you know, whether or not there's a slump, they still have a job, you know, things like health care, things like paid sick days, um, you know, it could uh, incentivize employers to talk to the people that work for them and say, hey, it might be in your interest to actually become an LLC or to become your own business. And we just hire your business services instead of hire you directly. Um, you know, th- that's kind of the, the fear that this will kind of erode those traditional employee protections. Okay, so we have this state of affairs where a ton of people now are working gigs rather than being employed full-time by a company. And what Congress has done is give them a little break, but also say, this is basically okay. Like, you know, the U.S. government is okay with this type of arrangement and with an economy in which more and more people are going to be having these types of freelance jobs. And we're going to go ahead and sanction that and try to help them make a living that way. Yeah. um, The thing is, is that it probably benefits employers more in the long run if the economy, you know, if we don't know what's going to happen with the economy, right? If if we don't know that, uh, you know, you're going to have the same amount of people wanting rides tomorrow or the same amount of jobs coming in the next week, you know, when you have a traditional job, you ostensibly would still get paid in some way, right? You would still get health insurance, you would still get benefits. Um, worker uh, Workers uh, will now lose that job security if, if they do decide to go down the gig route. Um, and they will also... Uh, uh, rather, employers will uh, not have to pay for those benefits anymore. So this really helps them. It's definitely a boon to uh, to employers that that don't want to be responsible for those types of you know employee uh, benefits. So this actually really helps a company like Uber, where it's actually been seen as an impending threat to their business model. The idea that their workers could be ruled de facto employees and that then they would be on the hook for benefits. Is that right? Well, it definitely um, helps to kind of validate that business model, um, especially if more people jump on board with that style of employment. You know, another thing I wanted to bring up that's going to kind of affect the future of work and, and in my opinion, somewhat dehumanize it because, again, like one of the important kind of tenants of, of, you know, being a, a, a worker or an employee in America is that, you know, you do get benefits from your employer, right? You do get um, paid sick days, you do get health care, you know, often that health care helps to cover a spouse, you get disability, you get all of these things that are designed to kind of help you live your life, you know, uh, whether or not, uh you know, business is 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 excellent or not. Maybe your pay goes down, but you still get benefits. But the other thing that that this tax code ushers in is uh, kind of it allows corporations to deduct their assets up front, right? So like capital expenses, and that means robots, right, or machines. And so if a corporation wants to buy a machine um, that can be written off their taxes. Uh, when that machine is bought in the first year, right? Now it is the case that corporations have to kind of gradually write that stuff off. But uh, but with the new tax bill, uh, corporations will be able to write those expenses off, uh, you know, kind of immediately. Um, and that will incentivize the purchase of more robots, which could lead to a reduction uh, in, in bringing more jobs and particularly manufacturing jobs. So a reduction? So it would lead to bringing le- less jobs back on shore? I mean, it seems like it would help 
companies that wanted to do more onshoring where they're automating the jobs instead of outsourcing them to workers in overseas? Yeah, if those robots, if so, I mean, that depends on the type of factories that open up. So for instance, um, Adidas is, you know, opening a factory, I believe in in Georgia. And that factory is not going to have many employees, but it's going to have a ton of robots, right? And so sure, like getting more robots in uh, to factories does help keep those uh, factories in the United States. But um, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that we're going to see a huge uptick in employment. You know, a factory that might have once, you know, hired hundreds of people might now only hire 100 people. Yeah, this seems it seems like a weird kind of byproduct of the valorization of American manufacturing that we've had in politics for a long time. You know, both sides, it's one of the only things that both sides agree on was, is that more manufacturing jobs in the United States would be a good thing. But the premise of that is supposed to be that they lead to good middle-class jobs, right? And if if the if you're bringing manufacturing to back to the United States just for the sake of it, and you're doing it without human jobs or without good jobs, that doesn't seem like the same kind of victory to me. Sure. You know, and who knows how this this like particular provision of the tax bill is going to play out. But um, but it could uh, it, it could definitely incentivize again the purchase of more machinery and the purchase of more robots. Um, but uh, but we definitely should dedicate a future show to this. Um, you know, Will, I want I want to know what's what's kind of on your mind as the year opens up. Well, I'm still having a hangover from the last big tech story of 2017, which was Apple's battery gate to rewind a little bit. For years, people have been complaining that every time Apple comes out with a new iPhone, their old iPhone seems to get a little slower. And so a conspiracy theory grew up around this, which is the idea that Apple intentionally makes old phones slower each time it issues a new version of its iPhone software, iOS, and that it does this in order to nudge people or compel people to buy a new phone. Obviously, one of the keys to Apple's success with the iPhone has been that you have to replace it so often. If this was true, it seemed like real malfeasance on Apple's part. What happened a week or two ago was that Apple came out and acknowledged in the face of a blog post laying out the evidence that, in fact, older phones do slow down, or they have slowed down at least in the past year when Apple came out with a new software update. But they said, this is not because we're trying to nudge people to buy new phones. It's because there was a problem with older phones and older batteries. As those batteries degraded, the phone was randomly shutting down when there was a lot of demand for power. So we put in this fix. We put in a sort of limiter in the software update that that caps the peak processing power of these older phones. And the idea was to actually extend their life, not to force you to buy buy a new phone, but to make the old phone uh, usable for a longer amount of time without randomly shutting down on you. April, do you buy that? You know, sure. I think it's fair for them to say, and it's actually totally true, that lithium-ion batteries do degrade over time. And it does make sense with a software update to like add a feature that will make sure that the phone doesn't shut off or to like, you know, make sure that the performance stays high so the battery life doesn't slump. Um, but to also say that they are, you know, not doing this in any way to nudge you to buy a new phone when your phone starts to to not work as well, um, I think is a really difficult uh, thing to believe or at least uh, for them to say in good faith. You know, people have suspected this for a long time. And I think the, another part of people's suspicion is that this is uh, these batteries, you know, degrade kind of on a convenient cycle of when, you know, new iPhones come out. Now, they might have, you know, time to their product release cycle with the life and death of a lithium ion battery. And if that's the case, you know, then that's just really smart of them. But it's really about user choice for me. 
Like if people knew that their battery was dying, then they could get a new battery in a better kind of iPhone world. But people didn't know their battery was dying. They just thought that their phone wasn't working as well and it was time to get a new one. Yeah, that, I think that's the key point here is that it, it, Apple wasn't transparent about this, right? Like, I don't think anybody would have blamed them for making this fix if they had come right out and said what they were doing at the time. But Apple is very secretive as a company. They don't like to tell people what's going on behind the scenes. They still have this ideal of a phone that just works when you have it in your Mm -hmm. hand. You don't have to think about the mechanisms behind it. And so I guess you could say that it was just that they didn't want to bug people with unnecessary notifications or that sort of thing. But it feels thin. It feels like they should have said, hey, your your battery is running low. If you don't replace it, you're going to notice some slower speeds when you use this phone. Then people could have gone out and gotten the new battery. But the thing is, those new batteries are really expensive too. They're not, they're not cheap. And so when Apple finally apologized last week, they did lower the price of a new battery. Now, at least you can finally do that. I know. And the batteries aren't just expensive uh, to replace. You also have to go to like a special place that has special tools to open the iPhone. I mean, these phones are just not interoperable or necessarily like user friendly from the aspect of the de- of device ownership, right? And the other thing that really comes out here for me is that, you know, we depend on all of these gadgets that um, get software updates over the cloud, and we don't actually know what that software is doing when it's being updated, you know? And it could include a little provision, for instance, that slows down the life of your battery in order to maintain performance speed, which is what Apple did. Right. And just to clarify, we're talking about the processor speed of the phone. Yeah, yeah, the processor speed of the phone, not the battery. And so, um, you know, we we see all kinds of, uh, you know, ways that software is used to do things that we would prefer it not to do. I think VW is a good example of this in the way they had software that circumvented, you know, emissions standards and stuff like that. You know, I mean, this is uh, this is stuff that's happening in computer code that we don't see with devices that we own. And uh, and this is a, a, just a great example of the fact that that uh, companies really can do what they want with devices that we own. That's a great point. We live in a time when we depend on these devices more than ever, and yet we don't really have full ownership over them. We'll talk about some other scary and interesting aspects of the futuristic moment that we live in when we come back with an interview with Future Tense editor Tori Bosch. First, it's time for a short break. Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our guest today is Tori Bosch. She's the editor of Slate's Future Tense, which, if you have listened to this show at all before, including today, you know, is a project of Slate, New America, and Arizona State University that explores emerging technologies and their implications for policy and society. Tori, along with Roy Scranton, edited the new book, What Future? The Year's Best Ideas to Reclaim, Reanimate, and Reinvent Our Future. 
Tori was also my editor for several years. She helps to edit April. Uh, so we have a, a bias toward thinking Tori is wonderful and amazing. But we'll, we'll try to ask you some really tough and pointed questions anyway, Tori. I'm here for it. Welcome to If Then. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. So the first question I wanted to ask you was, was uh, sort of a meta question about this book and about the work that you do. You've, for years now, have been editing Future Tense. So every day you're dealing with uh, story pitches, um, editing stories, uh, going to panels and conferences and listening to speakers about what the future holds and what it means for us. How has that changed, if at all, over the years? Like the way we talk about the future, the way we think about the future, is it any different today in 2017 than it was when you started at Future Tense? That's a really great question. So I've been editing Future Tense for six and a half years now, um, and it's a little discombobulating to have the future be your present for that long. Um, <laughs> it creates this sort of strange cycle of not really knowing what is happening at the moment. Um I think one thing that's changed is that when I first started, when we talked about dystopias or fear of the future, it was in a much more playful way. So people talked about it as the future being scary, but it was in this sort of like horror movie, we like to scare ourselves manner. Now people are a lot more serious when they talk about being terrified of the future, when they talk about robots, when they talk about surveillance, when they talk about all these things that felt a little bit more fun scary now just seems scary scary. I'm going to back up a second because one of the cliches that you deal with all the time I know as an editor is this quote that's attributed to William Gibson about the future is already here it's just unevenly distributed and you cannot let that go into every single story that you run and so I think have you just made like a blanket rule against using it at all? Oh it's completely banned. Um, maybe one day I'll run a piece about why the quote is sort of not our best way to think about the future and the present, but unless I'm sort of dealing with the quote itself, I will not run a piece that that mentions it. I love that. And you've also banned, really quickly, what else have you banned in terms of <laughs> cliches about the future? Uh, robot overlords may not grace future tense for sure. Um, Minority Report, 1984, Brave New World, Gattaca <laughs> references are verboten unless you have a really great reason for it. And it helps talk about surveillance is not a great reason for it. Um, and then it sounds like science fiction, but, which is the way people love to open up a story if they can't think about a great lead. So I, I'm, I'm so with you on all of those things being so redundant. But one of the reasons why they're so popular is that these stories or these tropes um, actually make sense to folks in terms of, you know, what's happening now. It seems like a trajectory that we might go in, like with Minority Report. And I'm curious, like with this book, do you find that you touched on some of those uh, tropes? Like, for instance, uh, there was a, a, a particular um, piece on automation and, you know, in terms of robot overlay. It does seem like, you know, robots are going to be playing a huge role in, in society moving forward. And, and not that they don't now, but that's going to increase. Yeah, I think that's right. And but the problem for me is that they're a shorthand that doesn't totally mm -hmm. represent the thing. So when we talk about Minority Report, which I acknowledge was really great in how it brought together a lot of futurists and technologists to imagine a future that seemed plausible – but at heart, the whole idea of the precogs is just magic. There's no discussion as to how these, these beings are able to see into the future and anticipate crime, right? So 
we're not talking mm-hmm. about interrogating algorithms for their bias, for instance, or for where they might be misleading. It's just magical and we deal with the effects. I think that we need to talk about the way technologies come about and the inputs into them to be able to have like a really great conversation about the implications of the tech. Right. A more reality-focused conversation. (laughs) Right. I mean, when you talk about Big Brother, I ran a piece recently on Future Tense that pointed out that there's not really one Big Brother. We have thousands of little brothers and sisters based at individual law enforcement agencies um, Mm -hmm. or government departments. You know, there's not one body that's collecting these things. We have to think about them um, being a whole lot of siblings, not just a single one. And so I think that when we use these shorthands that are incomplete, it continues to give people sort of the wrong idea about the technologies that they need to be able to discuss. Yeah, I I like that point. And and also like, you know, the way that we reach for these science fiction touchstones, I think probably shapes our thinking about the future so much. And it probably constrains our thinking about the future when when we're drawing on the same tropes over and over. So, So it makes sense to me. I think I did slip in a few Minority Reports and Robot Overlords before you. <laughs> I was probably part of the reason you instituted your ban when I was <laughs> blogging for Future Tense years ago. But one of the things that that, st- that struck me when I was reading this book is that the, the true stories, I mean, the, the true stories that are grounded in realities and specifics are so much more interesting in some ways than than the dystopias that Hollywood has dreamed up for us. Uh, one of the ones that I enjoyed from the book that I wanted to pull out um, was called uh, let's see, uh, one Swede will kill cash forever unless his foe saves it from extinction. This is a piece that ran in Wired in 2016 by Mallory Pickett. It was an amazing piece. I had not heard of Mallory Pickett before. I'm going to go try to find uh, her other stuff. Um, but it was it was about how a former member of ABBA has become this crusader in Sweden for killing cash and getting rid of cash. What? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like too strange. <laughs> it's it's really this classic Wired story like that reminds me of what Wired was like in the early days when it was... More punk rock. Yeah, yeah. it was a little more punk rock. And it was like... It was like it was telling these crazy stories from around the world that you couldn't quite believe were true. Um, but anyway, his son, I guess, was the victim of a burglary mm-hmm. uh, and he just started thinking about it and was like, we shouldn't have cash anymore. And most of Sweden, it turns out, agrees with him, except this one guy who's like a, a former head of Interpol or something um, who's in private security and is, is leading all these old people in this rebellion who are saying, no, save cash. We must have cash. And this was it was a fascinating story in its own right. But it also, to me, was was a bit of a microcosm for this bigger battle we're having right now between the forces of like globalism and technology and efficiency uh, and the people who want to hold on to old ways and traditions. Am I, am I reaching there to impose that kind of like Brexit Trump framing on this story of, of uh, a former ABBA singer and a security guard in Sweden <laughs> fighting over cash? No, I think that's actually pretty close to right. Um, what I love about that story is that it's, it, is a case study in what happens when we make changes based on technology without thinking about it. Right. Part of the point of the story is that this transition just sort of happened and Swedes kind of looked up one day and said, oh, we're not really using cash anymore. And for a lot of people, that was totally fine. It's not as great for people who are older or live in rural areas. There have been problems with churches being able to deposit um the donations at the end of a week because banks now have limits on the amount of cash they'll accept if they do accept cash. So Mm -hmm. I think what this story says to me is that we need to have buy-in from all elements of society. 
when we're talking about making a major change based on technology. And so, you know, I don't want to get into sort of like economic anxiety um, as as a reason why people cling to cash necessarily. Um, in this sense, it's a, a real economic anxiety. It's It's something that people have reason to be worried about. And it's not fair to dismiss their claims as being Luddite or or just being old fashioned. They have legitimate concerns and ignoring them um, is a reason to be to be worried. I'm curious if there was like any kind of connective tissue around how we're going to think about ourselves in relation to technology, which is really, I think, at the core of, of any privacy conversation with tech that that uh, kind of come up for you or came up for you as you were editing these pieces. I think. When it comes to privacy, one of the things I think you'll see in the book and on Future Tense in general is this idea that, as Will has written about, our devices can kind of become part of us. Mm -hmm. So, you know, extended mind theory, that your phone represents a part of you in a way. And I think that um, there's a relationship here between this idea that, you know, online is not real life, which I find sort of bizarre because we use our our devices to live our lives. We live our lives online and there's a, a seamless, um, you know, there's no real division between them. Mm-hmm. One thing that, that makes me feel some relief when I compare now to when I first started with Future Tense, though, is that we're seeing much more sort of sophisticated ideas of privacy. So, for instance, you know, teenagers having a public facing Instagram and a, a private Instagram just for their friends. Um, people talk about teenagers not having a concept of privacy, but they're actually just a lot more nuanced in what they think of as what belongs in the public sphere and what doesn't. And so that's been pretty cool to watch, just kind of seeing people develop these new ideas about um, how to protect themselves, how to protect their devices and how to protect their digital footprint. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the extended mind theory. And this is, you know, for those who aren't familiar, this is the idea that our minds as humans encompass not just what's in our brain, but the the tools that we have as a, at our disposal. Um, and these days, a smartphone is a big part of that. So like when somebody asks you, do you know what the tallest mountain is? Well, you might not know it in your brain, but your smartphone knows it. And functionally, it's as if you know the answer to that question because you can you can access it in a couple seconds. What I liked about the fact that you brought this up in the context of privacy is that it makes me think, well, as we have more and more connected devices and as our mind, you know, extends to include our smart speaker and our, uh, you know, our self-driving car and and whatever else, our refrigerator, God knows, um, <laughs> you know, we're we're incorporating companies into our mind in a way. I mean, this is getting a little abstract maybe, but like, you know, part of our mind will now be driven by the business interests of Amazon or Google or by, you know, uh, Apple or uh, Honeywell. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think that that's another sort of theme of what future is talking about the influence that companies have on on the way we live our lives. One of the pieces in it is Elizabeth Colbert's um, Our Automated Future from The New Yorker, which talks a lot about robots and um, 
robots and the workforce, which is a topic that can get extremely robot overlordy in a way that that can frustrate me. What I loved about this piece was that it wasn't apocalyptic. It was really thoughtful and measured. And in a way that's scarier because when someone opens and closes with the standard robot overlord joke, I feel like I can kind of dismiss it because it, it hasn't been thought about quite as critically. But um, Elizabeth Colbert's piece sort of intersects with the discussion about about capitalism and the future and how we can be left behind, um, sort of like how sci-fi author Ted Chang had a, a piece in BuzzFeed today saying um, that we don't need to be worried about artificial intelligence as much as runaway capitalism. So that's definitely something we come back to again and again in the book is the way um, you know these decisions can be in the hands of big companies and we're just sort of at their mercy. Now, one question I have is 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 uh, the policy questions because throughout these pieces, there you know we do see laws come up that kind of like clash with what people want to do with their tech or they can't do or that kind of regulate the way the tech is able to be made, and that's also again a big theme throughout uh, Future Tense and, and and your work at Slate. And yet, it seems like the, the the policy dial is just always moving, and it's something that we don't always have a lot of control over. So, like for instance, right now with network neutrality, you know, you've been editing stories uh, along this entire roller coaster ride for for a few years now. You know, when we didn't have it, and then it looked like we weren't going to have it, and then all of a sudden we had it, and it was a good to go, and then now it's it's gone. And um, I'm I'm curious what your your thoughts are, kind of as somebody who's been editing stories on tech for so long about this this roller coaster that we're in now with net neutrality just to, to bring it back to something kind of more in the news. You're right. I mean, policy can be terrible, um, especially, you know, if it's actually motivated by the wrong thing. So one thing that we mentioned in the introduction um, and something that I think Fred Kaplan from Slate has written about is that the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which was the law under which Aaron Swartz, the information activist, was prosecuted, that was sort of inspired after members of Congress saw a screening of War Games, oh the Matthew Broderick movie. I didn't know that. So, yeah, it's horrifying, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's a fine movie, but you the know, way we talk about the future matters. Then, <laughs> exactly. So the way we talk about it um, and reacting only based on information and in science fiction or technology infused fiction um, can be limiting. So. Um, you know, I, I think when it comes to policy, net neutrality, of course, is a huge disappointment. But I also, the fact that it's been repealed, of course, I, I believe in net neutrality. Uh, but it's so wonderful to see how the discussion around net neutrality has changed. So when I first started with Future Tense, net neutrality was one of those things that you just couldn't yes. put in a headline. It was like lead. As soon as it was in there, it just sank. No one wanted to read it. It sounded so wonky. But in the past few years, thanks to people like John Oliver, we've seen people feel empowered to discuss this thing that is really incredibly technical and kind of difficult to wrap your head around. And yet people understand it and have strong feelings about it. And so even if net neutrality is now not the rule of the land, it's just so wonderful to see that people have been engaged on it. And it gives me hope that we will find a new solution, whether it's through legislation or something else, because it's a lot easier to to push something like a net neutrality repeal through if no one's paying attention. 
I think you're totally spot on with this because net neutrality is something I've been uh, looking at for like almost I think over 10 years now as a policy issue. And the level of engagement that we've seen amass over the past two years has just been incredible. And a lot of that has to do with uh, the fact that people are just more dependent on technologies, perhaps more than they they were in the past, or at least more, they're, they're more cognizant of their dependence. Yeah, exactly. I think it's the cognizance that's the most important thing here. Um, and you know, and what's going to be the next net neutrality? What's the next thing that feels super wonky to me right now? And I worry readers will sort of just scroll past it. But someone is going to figure out a way to sell some super wonky technical policy question to people. I would love to do it. It might not be me, but someone will do it. And it's going to be really exciting to see um, people rally around genetic privacy or something along those lines. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I was actually going to ask you about just that. I mean, what are some topics that you're getting that you're editing stories on today that just aren't really connecting with people, or you feel like people aren't really understanding them or, or interested in them, but you feel like they will, you know, in three or five years, will look back and say, "Gosh, we should have been paying more attention to that." That's a great question. I mean, one of them is anything to do with law enforcement surveillance technology. And I mean, there's definitely a cohort of people who care deeply about it, but it's hard to explain. A stingray, which is, you know, a, a device used by law enforcement that tricks all the phones in an area into hopping onto a fake cell phone tower, essentially, so that um, police can track somebody or or identify somebody. Mm-hmm. That's despite the cool name stingray. It's a little bit hard to put that in a headline. You know, people aren't going to recognize the word right away, and so it can be a little bit of a tough sell. But I think that. Um, you know, especially after we get a ruling on the upcoming Supreme Court case about cell phone tracking, I think stingrays are going to be the next frontier in similar technologies. Um, genetic privacy, for sure. I think that people have just sort of become extremely excited about 23andMe and other at-home genomics testing. I think that right now they're sort of harmless, but I don't know about how these companies will use that information going forward. And that's something that concerns me. And we've run things on it, but it's it's not something that resonates with everybody. So that's another place where I think we have a lot of potential to work on the way we communicate about it. All right, Tori, thank you so much. I think that's a great place to wrap. Uh, Tori Bosch, along with Roy Scranton, edited the new book, What Future? The Year's Best Ideas to Reclaim, Reanimate, and Reinvent Our Future. She is also the wonderful editor of Future Tense. Tori, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. All right, that's our show. You can get updates about what's coming next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. You can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser, and Will is at Will Oremus. Thanks again to our guest, Tori Bosch, for joining us, my editor and Will's editor sometimes. You can find her on Twitter at the Kai Bosch. That's the K-I-B-O-S-C-H. We also have a favor to ask of our listeners. I know you've heard this before if you're a regular listener, but if you like the show, please, please go to iTunes and Stitcher and wherever you listen and leave us a review. It does us so much good and helps us bring the show to a wider audience. We really appreciate it. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Don Aulis at A Room with a VU Studio in Santa Barbara. Thanks to Adam Munoz at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley. Our theme music is provided by Doug Chase. We will see you next Wednesday in Las Vegas. Yes, we'll be at the Consumer Electronics Show, which uh, will 
Well, we'll just see how it goes. <laughs> Bye, everybody. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.